Hello and welcome to the Impossible Podcast with me, Caleb Woodbridge, me, Swithin Dobson, and me, Peter Bell. Join us for our commentary on the Impossible Astronaut. It's been a while, but we are at last back around the microphone to discuss uh, the new series of uh, Doctor Who. Since, since it's been a while since we've been on air, so to speak, uh, let's just reintroduce ourselves. Uh, I'm sort of probably the enthusiastic one in that uh, I'm a big fan of uh, both of the new series in the Russell T Davies and Stephen Moffat variations with sort of minor quibbles here and there but pretty uh, pretty much the fanboy whereas Swiven's probably the other end of the spectrum. Yeah I'm right all the time like <laughs> everybody else. Uh, yeah I'm generally more fond of the so-called classic series and uh, um, maybe considered somewhat cynical on occasions, or most of the time. And yeah, I, I do like some of the stuff. I just tend to like less than most people. Yeah, your your, your heart is very much in the nineteen uh, sixties and seventies. It is indeed. <laughs> um, and I'm Peter, and I'm the Nick Clegg of the podcast team. In that, um, I tend to swing wildly from one extreme to the other, <laughs> whilst um, spending most of the time sitting on the fence. I take the new series as I find it, to be honest. I have been enjoying it a lot more of late, to be honest, oh. since Steve Moffat took the reins. Um, but I, I also like a reasonable amount of the Russ T. Davis era, but I found it started to grate more and more as it wore on. Um, but, as I say, we're in a new era, so uh, I'm, I'm feeling optimistic. We'll, we'll see what we all think as we get on, I think, won't we, guys? So, uh, just uh, to uh, catch up a bit, since it's, we haven't done a podcast since the middle of Series 5, early, early on in Series 5, mm. in fact. So, uh, what, 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 what did you think of um, the first series of the Stephen Moffat, Matt Smith era? Um, what were your overall impressions of, of that first series? I thought it was a big return to form, to be honest. Um, as I as I said, I'd been getting quite jaded um, with the Rusty Davis era, especially during the um, standalone specials. Oh, yeah. um, I thought they dragged the whole thing out a little bit too long, but, and I, I thought the series was becoming a bit too big and a bit too simple um, and repeating itself too often. But Moffat really gave it a kick at the backside. Matt Smith is a fantastic doctor. I've really been enjoying him. Karen Gillan uh, is very watchable as the companion. And um, new TARDIS, new, just a new tone, I think. Um, mm. It's the dark fairy tale um, has been talked about endlessly online, so I won't really go into it here. Um, I think even that's an oversimplification, but I like the more cerebral tone, the slightly more complex stories. Um, there's slightly more metaphysical threats that are being uh, thrown in as opposed to just gigantic space armadas appearing over London every couple of weeks. So, yeah, no, it's, it's been good fun. I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I, I liked some of it. It felt, felt I felt as though, having seen the first two episodes of this season, that Stephen Moffat just done the Big Bang in the first episode last season. Lendon did what he wanted to do, rather than just having a series of an extended reset which is kind of what I felt with Victory for Daleks. And that's not to say I didn't like any of it. Uh, Amy's Choice was by far, I think, the best episode of the last season, even though that had its problems. Um, I thought that was far more interesting than, than a lot of them. Uh, and I, as I said at the time, probably, I still think Beast Below was one of the better episodes as well, which is uh, where everyone else is wrong <laughs> again. <laughs> Slightly um, controversial. Yeah. <laughs> which uh, even, even Stephen Moffat, I think, admitted in uh, Doctor Who magazine that with... Um, the Beast Below and um, Victory of the Daleks, they were still uh, finding their uh, feet into production-wise mm. and perhaps Ooh, made yeah. uh, some of their 
this, that was where they perhaps made some mistakes. Uh, yeah. I, th- I think it says something that your commentary podcast for Victory of the Daleks was ten times as entertaining as the episode itself. Mm. Indeed. So, yeah, um, some of them I like. I, oh, them like. I like the one in Venice. That was quite good. Well, vampires. I, I enjoy I really the vampires. Like, I, I, I do, because I hadn't seen it for ages, so I tried to resurrect the episodes in my mind. Mm. But yes, that I, again, I thought it was quite good. If I had the let's let's take a rip off uh, off Godzilla Godzilla type ending. Not Godzilla. Yes. No. King Kong. That's the one. Entirely yes. Yeah, King 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 Kong ending again. Hmm. Yeah. So that was that was, that was quite clever. Um, so yeah, uh, tonal things I like it. He should be a bit more cynical. That'd be better. <laughs> um, he's, he's he's got a bit too much whale love for my liking. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I I think I I really liked it as a whole. There were some stories I thought worked better than others. Like um, I thought uh, Time of Angels and Flesh and Stone was really uh, good, but perhaps Cold Blood, The Hungry Earth, perhaps a bit less so. Uh, but um, yeah, there were lots of really um, fun and interesting stories. I thought the Van Gogh episode was a, yes, another highlight. Yes. Yeah, I think that was the um, high point of the series for me. Uh, and um, yeah, it felt it did feel somewhat transitional, especially, yeah, especially um, it did seem to follow a similar pattern to the Russell T Davies thing, just in terms of the structure of the series, uh, sort of uh, pushing it in slightly different ways, a different feel to it, but um, following uh, the sort of um, same uh, stru- structure in lots of ways. Uh, so the, the the opening episode, the sort of two parts in the same uh, place, a sort of uh, similar kind of series finale, but with added Moffat timey wimeyness mm, yeah. um, so um, I thought it it was um, it was a it was a good progression but one of the things that I think uh, we've seen in these uh, opening stories and just in the fact that the series has been split in half you're opening with a two part already it gives it a very different good. dynamic mm. and I think um, we're going to see it's going to be a lot more um, an adulterated Moffat approach to Doctor Who um, uh, compared to uh, perhaps the uh, I think he again talks about this in an interview sort of uh, slight element of reassuring people that a lot of things have changed but yes this is the mm. same show yes. um, and that's a sort of natural part of its development but I'm mm-hmm. excited to see where he goes uh, with it and where how Matt Smith and Karen Gillan and uh, Arthur Darville, of course. Uh, Rory is a great character. (laughs) Yeah, I I really like having the a married couple in the TARDIS, and I think that's got a lot of potential. So, I'm hoping Arthur Darville is going to get some more screen time this year because I felt he's poorly underserved Mm. last year. So, having set the stage, let's get stuck into the episode and just a moment. So, here we are, episode one The Impossible Astronaut. Hit the play button, and of course, we begin with the dedication to Elizabeth Sladen, who um, sadly died. So, uh, that yeah, was I, quite a shock. It really was, yes. I mean, Again, everything that I think could possibly be said about Elizabeth Sladen has been said um, far more eloquently than I can say it by by the people mm. who knew her. But um, I'm wondering if her death will be addressed within the series as well, because as mm. a past companion, she had far more of an impact yeah. on the new series than uh, many of the other past characters. Yeah. And, of course, Doctor Who crossed over directly into the Sarah Jane Adventures on a couple of occasions. Yeah. Time will tell, I guess, but we, we do plan to do our own Liz Sladen tribute with a special K9 and Company commentary. You in, lucky in, people. In, in memory uh, of her. But, uh, yeah, so we'll we'll come back to that at a, at a later stage. Just, just to say, I imagine I think at least once, maybe twice, and she was 
very perfectly pleasant and very enjoyable to get on with as uh, conventions. Mm. Just to say, I saw her filming the first series of the Sarah Jane Adventures, um, you know, several years ago in Cardiff. Didn't get chance to meet her unfortunately because she was in the middle of filming. But uh, yes, uh, it's a shame I'll never actually get the chance to meet her face to face. And um, but yeah. yes, meanwhile, back at the episode, um, we're intercutting between. Yes, comedy snippets of the Doctor in the past and Amy and Rory at home. I thought this was quite a slow and disjointed opening myself. Um, what do you guys think? S- uh, slow isn't exactly the word I'd use. Uh, disjointed, um, I think it's quite fast-paced. It just, um, it just seems... Ra- I think my main problem was it just seemed rather a contrived opening. Well, the, in- the intercutting is very, very fast. The editing is very tightly mm. done. But the actual story doesn't start until they reach the desert no. after the uh, well that, before the pre the opening credits. It's just like they're, they're going somewhere, just taking a long time mm. getting there. Did we really need the Doctor hiding under people's skirts and larking about with Laurel and Hardy when he was just going to send them a letter with the time to meet him anyway? The packing line we get here. Yeah. Is oh, great. This, is, this is funny, but it, every time we see the Storm Cage containment facility, it really does. Um, seem increasingly useless, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, it's 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 it's, it's, an, it's it's the modern prison. It's high security, but it's also open. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we're, we're a compassionate society. We let the rapists and murderers go out on day release. But I'm wondering, are you suggesting that River Song is a rapist? <laughs> <laughs> no, but that'd be very entertaining. I, I'm wondering though whether the it'll prove more significant because the future Doctor, as we will shortly learn, this is. Um, mm. Uh, we don't see him with the TARDIS, and he's 200 years older now. Has he just lived through the last 200 years mm. um, without, stranded on Earth, without the TARDIS running from the silence? Um, uh. And if so, will that sort of pre-titles, let's just have a lot of exciting, fast-cutting stuff, yes. actually prove out to be more significant in... That's interesting. Yes, that could be. And here we've just gone from the amazing shots of Utah and uh, the uh, desert looking amazing to the diner in Cardiff. <laughs> yes, Eddie was it Eddie's diner in Cardiff Bay? Yeah. Oh, is it? Is that what? Mm. Now, I found this bit tonally a little bit confusing in that they're in modern day America. M- much yeah. of the adventure, as we know, is set in the United States in 1969. They've wound up in Utah in the present day. Um, but the, um, thematically, it still seems to be very much 1950s and 60s because the Doctor arrives yeah. in a vintage car. They're in a diner uh, where the overriding decor is sort of kitsch, 1950s, 60s Americana. Uh-huh. So it uh, it mm. doesn't feel very much like modern yeah. day America. The the shift between time zones within the same country isn't quite as marked as perhaps it could have been. Yeah, I I I agree with that. Perhaps just having a few prominent shots of people walking around with mobile phones or whatever, just mm. a few visual shorthands. Oh, with the logo, we've now got the little BBC thing. Yes, that f- seems a little bit unnecessary. Mm. I'm sure it's there for a reason. But, uh, <laughs> Branding. <laughs> we've got the little BBC in the top left-hand corner as well. So we're back, to, back to Utah and the picnic and them supping a last supper of wine and grapes <laughs> and cheese. So this this is actually filmed in, in Utah. This is filmed in Utah. And of course this is the second time that the new series has gone abroad to film in a desert. How do we feel the use of the location contrasts with the Planet of the Dead? Ah. Uh, oh, it's a creepy shot of what appears to be a silence. Uh, yes, our first shot of the silence. Uh, uh, I think um, I think it's used. Well, it, it's a bit hard to say because um, I think this is just su- such a much better story than Planet of the oh, Dead, yes, which probably colours my impression. But I think this looks a lot better uses it a lot better it's mm, um, uh, incorporates into the uh, it makes it makes the Am- American setting a lot more of a virtue mm, um, yes. 
and the actual physical landscape becomes part of the story mm. with the use of the lake and the dam later on as yeah. well. Uh, whereas Planet of the Dead, you know, they stood on top of one sand dune, they might have, you know, <laughs> you've seen one sand dune, you've seen them all. Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think this episode is one of the best looking cinematography-wise yeah, it, episodes, especially yeah. the bit we'll get to in about five minutes. Yes. Uh, is particularly good. Um, this bit, again, with the, we've just got our first shot of the um, Apollo EVA suit you know, coming out of the lake. Well, mysteriously dry, it has to be said. I, yeah. Um, see, all of this bit, I mean, the whole conversation and the casual chatting on the rug with the wine and the cheese and things, it just, it just seems to be a little bit extraneous to my mind. Yeah. It's going to set together with a nice picnic. And then um, we stand at a distance. Well, I, I think wait. one of the things you're establishing here, you know, one of the things that's quite poignant, is River meets a doctor who she's in sync with when they get together. Um, they match diaries. He knows the same thing. They're on the same page. Yes. And then the moment that happens, she loses him. So yeah, you've, you've got, got the emotional you know sort of setting up um the relationships and things yeah. so that you it's got an uh, that engagement so you know that there's that relationship to make mm. you care about this and there we go the astronaut has just killed the doctor uh, the first regeneration tease mm. another one coming later and and um what I mean, Doctor Who magazine had uh, gone to town with the whole four covers, and one of these will die. And um, I have to admit, I was slightly um, uh, sort of what again about this, considering that River died in the first episode that we met her. Yes. Uh, Rory was killed twice last series mm, and Amy was almost dead which is very different from completely dead yeah, that's true. Um, they really only left you with two characters that they could kill off um, and well I, I thought it probably would be the Doctor because um, future Doctor setting up a storyline because mm. I thought that's the only one that really you could get much mileage out of while being able to carry on the series fairly normally um, until the series finale. <laughs> yes. See, it's... I, I think, Swithin, you've referred to them killing off the Doctor as a gimmick. Was, it, was that Caleb? Well, no, no, no. Okay, I, I think it was in reference to what I said. No, what I found at the thought was, uh, in regards to this, it's a great interesting idea, mm-hmm. you know, killing Doctor, stopping regeneration, a few stuff. But at this point, it's like, oh, the Doctor's death was dead. He's not dead in any meaningful sense. No, I... I and, and it's yeah. like, he's obviously going to appear at some point soon, and we're going to carry on as normal. So it's like, I frankly don't care. Kill him off, do this quickly, and then get back to the other, the yeah. other stuff. This, this is part of the reason why I felt these opening scenes bogged the story down quite a bit, because you know the Doctor's not going to stay dead, especially once they establish that you have 200 years of his timeline in which mm. to correct things. Mm. Uh, they've killed off the one character that we know can never actually be truly dead. It's it's more setting up a um, a puzzle of uh, why why has this happened? Why did yes. he go willing mm. to? And I'm, I'm sure they will have an awful lot of fun with this and, mm. and trying to prevent it and figure out what's happened. But nevertheless, I think they spend far too much time worrying and fussing about not being able to tell him what's coming in his future. Uh, and mourning for his loss and what it means for each of them individually. Uh, it just slows things down, and we know that he's going to be fine by the end of the series. I, I, I think they have to take that seriously for it to be more than a gimmick. You have to deal with it emotionally mm. and all that kind of thing, because even though, sort of, as the audience, you know everything's going to work out fine in the end in any Doctor Who story, you always need, within the frame of reference of it, to take it seriously, to take the situation seriously. And 
laptops who is in a slightly tricky situation of um, it um, is quite self-aware and sometimes draws attention to its own proclivities um, so that can make it difficult to get the audience to take this kind of thing seriously mm. uh, so there's uh, but I think they're doing their best to treat it with that seriousness so you do engage with it and you do uh, sort of buy into the whole problem of the Doctor's death and the mystery of how and why and how will they get out of it. I see your point. Do we think burning his body in a rowing boat with some petrol in the middle of a lake is a particularly efficient way of destroying every single cell, by the way? <laughs> no, I think it's a, a nice f uh, thought, the whole thing about the empires would uh, tear the world apart to get hold of his body, hmm. and it's interesting uh, possible reference, Alien to, bodies reference to Lawrence Miles' book novel Alien Bodies, which was a H-Doctor adventure which saw him crossing over into a future point in his timeline, yeah. uh, where there's an auction of this powerful alien artefact that turns out to be his own dead body, and all these um, uh, different competitors have descended to yeah. uh, try and get their hands on it um, well, random aside uh, we're back in the diner I just noticed that they've green screened um, a street with passing cars and some mountains in the background outside which uh, is quite a nice touch because if you actually sit in the diner and look outside mm -hmm. in reality all you see is the Cardiff Bay waterfront so uh, and I hadn't noticed that the first time I saw it Hmm. And now we're getting into the who does the doctor trust the most thing? And yeah. surprise, surprise, it's the prisoner. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, the younger I, doctor makes an appearance. I think you can see a uh, British fire, fire extinguisher stick ah, thing yes, over yeah. there. <laughs> So. <laughs> I'm also quite sure that even in Utah you're not allowed to walk around in public with a six-shooter and a belt of ammunition <laughs> slung around your hip as uh, River Song is doing at the moment. That's true. The police tend to take exception. As you see, the doctor here is 300 years younger. Which brings us to the thorny issue of the Doctor's age, because between the Sylvester McCoy's time and the return of the series as um, uh, Christopher Eccleston, he lost 50 years, going from 950-something to 900. Well, when, when you get to that age, you'll probably stop lying about how old <laughs> you are as well. So um, the Doctor's age has generally gone up, but not entirely consistently, whereas since the series has come back, he's, it's kind of roughly gone, he's aged a year, uh, or said he's aged a year mm. for every year the show's been on there. Um, it's interesting that he doesn't seem to age physically no. uh, now, whereas I'd always assume that he would. Yeah. I, I think... It, might give, it would have given the game away as to what... Well, it might, to some extent, have given it away. Ooh, the Doctor significantly older. Ooh, that's mm. new luck. Well, well, given the amount of... I mean, if you compare his ages, was it 450 in um, Tomb of the Cybermen? And uh, yeah. 750 in the Tom Baker era, ah, and okay. 950 or so in the Sylvester McCoy um, time. He must have aged without visibly aging as much as he did. And also, if you take the spin-offs into account, then um, sort of there were he had several hundred years of adventures. Um, uh, in addition to those seen on screen, so he's probably ah, pr pushing um, 2,000. Um, <laughs> I was just thinking perhaps Matt Smith was dyeing his hair when he was the older incarnation. <laughs> no, because you, um, you had the whole uh, series of the books where they had uh, Paul McGann's Doctor ah, stranded, stranded on, on Earth. Earth for uh, the, basically the whole of the 20th century. Yeah. Um, it's nice to see them making use of the multi-level TARDIS mm. a bit more this year. I in the basement. Mm. I, I really liked these scenes in the TARDIS and just the um, <coughs> uh, characterisation, the interaction between them. I think um, the 
handling of the characters is uh, really good. It's a bit of a step up. Mm. Um, It was interesting looking at the Doctor Who magazine specials. There were lots of deleted scenes that seemed to flesh out the characters. It was a pity that it didn't make it on screen. Oh, right. Um, Is that for for the previous series? Yeah, for the previous series. And although in episode two in um, there seems to be it, it might have been a lot of plots that ended up on the cutting room floor there mm. I think in terms of getting the character development it's making it a lot more on on screen because ah, um, yeah. very sparse brief but effective characterisation was really the hallmark of Russell T Davis wasn't it? He mm-hmm. could draw quite a bold character in a few very yes. well chosen lines whereas Moffat his touch tends to be subtler but uh, that does mean he needs a bit more time and a bit more room perhaps to, to build up the uh, the characters in any depth in, in, in that scene we've got the first completely arbitrary point of the plot don't tell him he's dead for no apparent reason well, it's it's fairly well established the whole spoilers thing that the doctor isn't yeah. uh, they're not supposed to know each other's features. Mm. But then, didn't he completely ride roughshod over that in the Christmas special when he was telling what's his name, Michael Gambon, his well, he wasn't showing him his future specifically, but he was deliberately rewriting his past with um, his own knowledge. Yeah, he seems to be I, I, a bit more flexible in terms of. I, I think um, I think it's his his own uh, altering history is one thing altering his own personal past or future mm. ch- changing one's own timeline is a much bigger no no oh, Doc Brown did it <laughs> and he went on to two sequels but also I like the more serious side we're getting to the Doctor here with him sort of questioning River Song because I think I, I like Matt Smith's portrayal, but sometimes it can be a bit too cookie zany uh, and so on. So it's really good to have these things, um, see, scenes like this, where you see his he's he's almost menacing, and and you and you don't get that much in because um, William since William Hartnell almost, and this whole don't. Um, don't think you can mess with with me type thing. It's almost threatening them. Hmm. And, uh, That's true. And also those serious moments make River Song sufferable because <laughs> she's not so insufferably smug in these hmm. sequences, yeah. which is a bonus because I don't want to shoot her. <laughs> which I did on the first time I saw her in the episode. That's only because we had to watch those episodes eight times for the podcast. <laughs> Probably didn't you're, help you're, in dear. Dear listeners, you will never know what Swithin and I suffered to get the Silence in the Library podcast complete. Far far to the dead. That was horrendous. Ah, but now we've had the sort of prologue out the way, the sort of setting everything up for the series arc, and yes. now we're getting into the actual um, this week's story. <laughs> yes, but you see, this is, this is the point I was trying to make earlier on. The story itself doesn't actually start... And the characters aren't in place until a good 20 minutes into the... Because I thought the teaser trailer was going to be the opening scene to the episode. <laughs> I genuinely yeah. thought, hang on, I thought I'd seen the start of the episode. That, that, that is something else that's worth mentioning. The um, prequel little mini-episodes that have been oh, uh, yeah. especially written and filmed and released online. Um, what, what did we think of those? Because they did something similar back in Series 2, didn't they, with the tardis Yeah, they're much better made than the tardis Yes, um, certainly. Because uh, I, I thought the tardis were almost universally dreadful. <laughs> well, I, they, it was a nice idea to do a prologue thing, mm. but I think um, they... Uh, didn't really have the uh, budget to pull them off mm. very well. Um, the right, they were, I think, um, yeah, it, the the way they were written, um, 
perhaps could have been better, but I think could have been saved a lot if they'd have been done to the sort of yeah. standards. I think they delivered concept rather than idea, rather than storyline. Yeah. They? Whereas Moffat's prequel for this episode was, even though it was one very small scene. It gave you a little snippet of storyline yeah. and a huge bucket of atmosphere, yes. which I thought was really quite effective. It was actually slightly creepier than anything that was in the episode mm. itself. Mm. I, I, I do really like having the TARDIS arrive in the White House, especially as a big fan of the West Wing. Uh, I yes. mean, there's par- part of me wanting um, uh, Jed Bartlett to be <laughs> the one in there. That would, be that, that would be a crossover I'd love to see. I am impressed with their um, Oval Office set, actually. Which, of is the Glamorgan building. Well, this, this bit isn't the Glamorgan oh, building. Oh, no, no, this is, this is a set somewhere in the mm-hmm. Upper Boat Studios. Mm-hmm. But the, the corridors that you see outside when Amy's walking to the bathroom, that is the Glamorgan building. So this is an entire set, though. I yes. mean, um, Canton is played by, oh, what's his name? Mark Shepard. Mark Shepard, who's a bit of a science fiction. Yes, um, seems to be on a one-man crusade <laughs> to appear in every science fiction series on television. That's Lamkin in Battlestar Galactica, what else he, has he, he been? He plays a CIA agent in Dollhouse, he plays Badger in Firefly, he played the pyrokinetic in the very first series of The X-Files. <laughs> uh, he's been in all sorts of things. Um, oh, I, I love this bit where the doctor's yes. just gesturing them away. The, the scenes in the Oval Office are my favourite scenes of this episode. I think this is where the story really flies. Everything in this is pitch perfect. Yeah. And kudos to Moffat for doing a serious Nixon. Mm. Makes a change. It really does. Because <laughs> to be fair, it can't be... <laughs> Um, he can't be an easy character to write in a series like Doctor Who. How mm. do you handle him? If you look at the way they handled Churchill last year, uh, almost as a sort of caricature, to take mm. a far more subdued and serious you know, statesman-like approach mm. with uh, a man who's basically remembered as a crook, um, it's it's quite a refreshing approach. Mm. And he's played by Stuart Milligan, who was Adam Klaus in... Uh, Jonathan Creek. Yes, yes, I hadn't realised until the second episode. Well, um, I, I, I knew this, but um, uh, it was only when I pointed it out that Bev, who's my wife, who's a big uh, Jonathan Creek uh, fan, uh, she was like, oh, yes, sort of worked it out under all the layers of prosthetics. <laughs> a bit of a... Um, America gun culture yes. few digs <laughs> uh, it, they, they seem to recock their guns every time they point them it has is been that... pointed out that every that, yeah someone is adding sound effects whenever anyone raises a gun it automatically makes a clicking noise mm. as if it's being cocked so this is I believe another reason why the shift in time zones within the United States isn't quite as noticeable yeah. as I think it should be. Because the inside of the Oval Office in the 1960s looks exactly the same as the inside of the Oval Office no. today. Because mm. yeah, it does look just as it appears in the West Wing, for example. Yeah. Mm. Um, so we don't actually see much outside yeah, this you, building in the 60s. And, and you don't... Uh, and again, the haunted house, basically, we get in the next episode. That yeah. it, it doesn't feel like a particular... Yeah. It's not a sort of 60s setting. You don't mm. sort of get a kind of m- mad men glamour type no, uh, no. stuff, particularly. It's ironic that Mark Shepard... Playing, yeah, you know, a British actor playing a British character in almost every American series he's appeared in, finally turns up in a British series and plays an American. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there must be days he forgets his own nationality. I'm sure. Uh, here's one of the lines that was written for the trailer. <laughs> yes, the mobilised Jimmy Dodgers. <laughs> and the Fez reference for good measure. Did anybody else? See, I believe it turned up on Gallifrey base. Um, somebody pointed out that the Fez and the Mop 
um, in the Big Bang at the end of the last series was a direct visual reference to Silver Nemesis from the Sil- Sylvester McCoy. <laughs> I hadn't noticed that. Uh, because when the TARDIS materialises in the cellars of Windsor Castle, the, uh, the Doctor's ooh, ooh, our first ooh. glimpse of the silence. Sorry, I will get back to the whole Fez thing in just a moment. We should put the silence in a Fez. That would be cool. brilliant. <laughs> Oh no, if Dennis Potter was writing it, he'd do that and turn it into a musical with a silence and a fez. <laughs> a silent musical. <laughs> with a fez. A music- they should do a musical episode yeah. of Doctor Who. Oh, was it uh, Doctor, the, Doctor and the Pirates, Big Finish Audio, third episode, is a musical episode. That's <laughs> genius with Colin Baker singing. Now, it, it, would, I, 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 it would be amazing if they'd somehow managed to make the pirate episode, The Curse of the Backspot, a musical and kept that under wrap. <laughs> is, that, is that what the pirate episode is called? The Curse of the Black mm. Spot. Not <laughs> stealing anything from Pirates of the Caribbean there at all. Or Treasure Island. <laughs> oh, oh, we see the Glamorgan I building. I see there's the Glamorgan building. Yeah. And we see that uh, Karen Gillan is actually going to the men's toilets. Yeah. I've been in there many times. Uh, they have changed the sign. They have changed the sign. I did yeah. notice that. But... <laughs> um, no. Although the, the actual toilets aren't the Glamorgan building toilets. No. And, I mean, I think the design of the, the silence um, is very nice. The whole, it's a kind of combination of the traditional greys by way of the scream and uh, with skull-like yes. elements. It's, it's quite effective, isn't it? Although they're not particularly silent. No, no. Quite talkative, as we find out in episode <laughs> two. Indeed. Yeah. And, I, I, and, oh, just to point out, Karen Gillan does look slightly pregnant in this sequence um, having extensively looked over the two episodes she does look significantly more pregnant in this episode than she does in the second I, I, I did feel this scene perhaps went on slightly too long and was uh, well slightly too contrived just in terms of spelling out exactly how the silence works mm. yes um, it overstates th- its case, doesn't and it? And th- th- this and Joy, who is about to get zapped, there doesn't seem to be any good reason for her being zapped, except to show uh, that the silence are dangerous. No. And that, um, and, and in fact, we don't really find out what the silence are up to at all. They they they, they could be. Benign, they could be going and uh, mowing people's lawns silently without yeah. us, us knowing. Um, and uh, it's, I think, um, there's this. While, while I really like all the mysteries that are set up, I don't feel we get enough. We're not. It's not explained exactly why the silence are bad, why they're affected. They're, um, they're just there. This. This is why I felt that this episode, uh, and I think Smith and I are more or less of one mind in this case, as a whole, this episode didn't satisfy. It set up an awful lot, but in terms of actual storyline, I don't think it really delivered. Now, the second episode made up for an awful lot of that, and I know this is only part one of a two-part story, but uh, it seemed to be raising an awful lot of questions, and I think it perhaps... Uh, again, overstated its case in terms of just setting up mystery after yeah. mystery. I, I, I think because one of the things I thought, oh, perhaps the silence have to kill in order to communicate that they're mm. silent and they, unless they actually kill someone. But yeah. that doesn't seem to be the case at all. Mm. This security guard seems to be remarkably uh, relaxed about letting someone have a mobile phone. Yeah, <laughs> you brought a mysterious device. <laughs> Into the White House. I'm not sure what it does. I'm not sure who you are. But I'll just assume it's fine. Uh, oh, yeah, of course. Because I'm completely forgetting that this is the 1960s. Mm. Again. I, it, it, it's barely registering. Nixon, is, Nixon is really the only... <laughs> you got a retro silent. phone. Yes, that's it. But, uh, sorry, just very quickly, to resolve the Fez issue, when Sylvester McCoy materialises the TARDIS in the basement of Windsor Castle and is going through all of the Queen's belongings, he picks up a mop and puts on a fez and waves the mop around. Ah. Which is exactly what happens in the... Oh, it's Stephen Moffat trope. 
Again, it's a, it's a child. There, there, has, there has been quite a lot of talk about Stephen Moffat reusing his tropes, reusing oh, things does. like the creepy child voice, like the timey-wimey stuff. But I do, personally, I think that he does usually do something different with them. He does have some stock tricks, yeah. uh, but they do get used in different ways and to different purposes. Yes. Actually, I, I, I would agree with both ends of the argument there. Um, I agree with Caleb in that they are all very well used, they're all put to very good use, but similarly, every single Moffat trope makes an appearance in these two episodes. Well, it's, it's, it's like... Uh, it's, it, an awful lot of this feels very familiar. Well, it's like the whole astronaut costume. It's kind of like, hmm... Yeah. Science and library, anybody? We've had killer spacesuits. We've had mysterious child voices down phone lines and things at least twice. We've had the young, innocent child enslaved to mysterious alien technology twice. We've had the evil, a- evil alien monsters that you have to look at in order to defeat before now. We've had wibbly-wobbly, tiny-wimey countless times. But, again, it is all very well used. Mm. I think it's probably used better in this than mm. it's used in... Well, at least on a conceptual level, at least. Yeah. We've even had, and it wasn't in a Moffat episode, we've even had mysterious markings appearing on people's faces in a yeah. previous episode. Yeah, Impossible Planet. Yes. On the Satan pit. I didn't think, and this, this is just a personal criticism, because I've been researching the Apollo space program mm. uh, over the past couple of months for a piece of writing that I'm doing, um, for a two-part stories, first of which is called The Impossible Astronaut and the second of which is called The Day of the Moon I don't think they made enough of the actual moon landings or the or NASA or the space programme Well, I, I, I was surprised because I did think that they'd make a bit more of that because I was thinking that um, you'd end up with them actually on the moon and there'd be something on the moon that was mm. significant um, and yeah, it just... Because uh, one of the teasers Moffat gave for the story was Apollo at ten and a half, yes. and that idea seems to have got a little lost by the wayside. So mm. Perhaps perhaps he realised that somebody submitted a far superior script along those very lines to Big Finish for their competition last year, and decided <laughs> he, could, he could never possibly top it, so gave up. Whoever <laughs> <laughs> could have done that, I wonder. I don't know. <laughs> Why ever didn't they use it? Just, just sort of an odd observation. If this had been a, a uh, Russell Davis episode, the lighting wouldn't be blue; it would be pink. That's true. Or green. Uh, or green, yes. But we've now got cool blue lighting. Um, in, interesting Moffat. trivia fact. Do you know who was um, in charge of the development of the Apollo 11 um, EVA pressure suits? It was Michael Collins, who was the command module pilot on Apollo 11, who also developed the uh, pressure suits for the Gemini program. Uh, you'll be fascinated to know. <laughs> not, <laughs> not, not Michael Collins, the actor who uh, guest starred in was it Robots of uh, Death? No, no. <laughs> or the um, you know Irish revolutionary character, or nothing to do with the appalling uh, British Eurovision entry, Gemini. No, no, not at all. Um, um, it, it's, it's interesting because um, the silent told Amy to that she must tell the Doctor what he must know and what he must never know. Mm. Um, now, given the suddenness of her blurting out about being pregnant in just a moment, well, in a few more minutes, um, then uh, that might be one of them. Yes. Uh, and are we guessing that the Doctor's impending death well 200 years off death yeah. is the what he must never know well, I would assume I, so. I, uh, that was my initial thought what he must know and what he must never know but I she think. doesn't mention it which is intriguing no yeah. well sure this is uh, talk I oh, that, that, that was I, I, I do I do like um, how they're handling Rory uh, I think he's mm. getting some uh, good stuff to do. He 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 has become the audience identification yes. figure more more than Amy. Uh, really, uh, just he's the one who's bewildered, <laughs> asking all the questions. Um, and, uh, I, get, 
I can see why you're saying that, but it just feels like, oh, I'm tall guy Rory for the episode. He just, he just needs to be prodded around and doesn't really do anything. Right. And then, gets, no, just no. Because it, it's just because you got... I think it would be better without River Song being there. I think having yes. four is just a little too many of yeah, kind of sure. like main character yeah. see, this this is the problem I had with his role in the first series in that he was there constantly he had some good lines but wasn't given enough to do in terms of actual action and storyline mm-hmm. but th- that does change somewhat with the next episode <laughs> and will probably change even more I think as the series goes on I would but, hope so yeah, yeah. Oh, well, well, poor Rory being press going into yes. <laughs> going to down into the dark uh, tunnels. Yeah, uh, as, as Helen, my wife, pointed out, is are these tunnels actually going to hit the Silurian tunnels? Because there seems to be lots of alien races have tunnels under the earth. Yeah. <laughs> so are we going to hit another crossover at some point? <laughs> Now, I, 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 I'm thinking with the post-hypnotic suggestion thing, this might go uh, end up explaining how exactly the uh, all the monsters in um, uh, the Alliance uh, in the Pandorica Opens actually managed to uh, get organised to team up against uh, ah. the Doctor. Because, I mean, can you imagine the committee meetings where <laughs> the Daleks, the Cybermen, Silurians, <laughs> uh, all these things, uh, sit down to try and uh, agree on the plan? To, um, it would make the United Nations look positively tame. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and efficient. <laughs> um, but uh, if they all had uh, silences, um, silence uh, whispering in their ears, then that might go some way to explaining how that came about. They, they, could, they could take a, a European Union approach to things and have a Monster Vision song contest over <laughs> Just to promote <laughs> unity and understanding between the monsters of the universe. Well, strangely enough, Big Finish have got there with um, a Galactivision song contest oh, really? set oh. audio drama. All my good ideas are taken. <laughs> um, bang, bang, a boom, uh, <laughs> I think, by Clayton Hickman and Gareth Roberts. Oh, okay. Uh, it was their sort of Christmassy episode in mm. the year after The One Doctor. <laughs> But this is another good scene. Again, it's making River Song actually um, a like character it. rather than just Captain Jack with lady bits. Yeah. <laughs> um, what I meant to say was a female Captain Jack. I don't know why it came out quite like that. Um, <laughs> Sorry. But uh, this insight into things from her perspective and just. Um, it's moving us towards the end of her timeline as well, which mm-hmm. hasn't been mentioned especially since yeah. she was reintroduced. So, to, to clarify, I was thinking this at the time, does this, what she say actually make sense? And then I actually thought, yes, I think it actually just does. Because yeah. inside the library, we see her first, he sees her first, and she dies. She dies, yeah. Yeah, she, she, she talks about it. this day that's coming mm-hmm. when he won't she does, she does clarify yeah. that they are working in precisely opposite yeah, directions, yeah, yeah. as opposed to jumping around in the middle. Well, I think there must be... Well, we've already seen one exception, which is the future Doctor in this, and I think mm-hmm. there must be at least a couple of others, because mm-hmm. the... Um, uh, I don't... The, do- the Doc's... The, last meeting she has with the Doctor uh, before she goes off to the library seems to fit with the Doctor at a later stage mm-hmm. in his relationship with her. Uh, right. It seems... Um, it, oh, and here we've got the, the Lodger Lodge. TARDIS. Yeah. Mm. been an awful lot of theories about this. Uh, that it's the Master's TARDIS, that it's the Rani's TARDIS, that somebody else altogether is building a TARDIS. Um... Has anyone raised the possibility that it's actually the Doctor's TARDIS in a future incarnation? Well, ah. it's mentioned, um, I think, in uh, the second episode that the silence are parasites. They use other mm. people's technology. So, um, well, uh, those controls do look suspiciously Dalek-like. Mm. 
Mm. You need a massive plunger for that, though. Um, How big are the plungers now they've been redesigned? Oh, I don't know. Probably going to be in like ten different colours as well. <laughs> Decide. Now, was that. Now, we've, we've just seen. You know, electric style flashings and Rory in what appears to be immediate danger. Was that actually resolved in the next episode? Because we just see them several months later and there's a brief flashback to the scene in the warehouse. Not in detail. It basically seems to be they ran away. Uh, yeah, that's a bit rubbish. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I think there is a big gap. I mean, we'll get onto that in, when we come to the second episode. Mm. And here we have the post-hypnotic suggestion kicking in with Amy. She's got something to tell the doctor. Yeah. And also oh. the appearance <coughs> of the thing. And Amy wanting to shoot it to try and save the future doctor. Yes. Although we appear to have established at the start of this episode that the space suit is impervious to bullets because yes. River unloads five rounds into it and nothing happens. Or oh, is that a future version of the suit? Ah, good point. Is it not as... Oh, but it clearly has regenerative powers. We are, yeah, we are told in the next episode that it's enhanced mm. with alien tech. Yeah, well, I guess Amy's not thinking entirely rationally. Mm. It's more of a instinctive, emotional... Yeah, woman, pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, just don't work. I was wondering how long it would be before you said something. Disappointed if there was no open goal to roll it in. Um, I, I have to say that sort of um, Amy and Rory having a child is one of the storylines which I thought was quite likely once they had the married couple in mm. the tower. So I was surprised that the Amy being pregnant was introduced as an idea so quickly. No. Oh, it's a little girl in a suit. It's interesting for a show that's got an increasingly sort of liberal view of sexuality that um, the companions don't actually have children until they're happily married. Mm. And there we are, the cliffhanger. What yeah. did you think of the cliffhanger? The sort of it was quite different. It's more of a it was character. Thing and Amy has potentially made this terrible mistake yes. of shooting a child. That does appear to be uh, one of Moffat's one of Moffat's strengths. Um, where Russell T Davis tends to fail is is his cliffhangers are more emotional, more character based. And this is our next time trailer. Yeah. I did quite like the cliffhanger. The resolution, on the other hand, was... Uh, it was confused, I think, wasn't it? Well, it wasn't resolution. confused. It was like, it was really lame, but we'll put it in the middle of a massive chase sequence of various things, and we'll kind of forget about it. Yes, I, I got the impression the scene was cut, but... Uh, yeah, it... So obviously this is a difficult episode to judge on its individual merits being the opening of a two-parter and setting so much up for the series as a whole. But um, focusing on this episode as much as possible, does, does it work as an opener, particularly um, for the perhaps um, more casual viewer? There's been some uh, concern that this it's too complex, too hard to follow. Uh, did you find that? Do you think that's an issue? Well, it's interesting you say that. I was talking to some of my students uh, today at college. They're about 16, 17. One of the guys asked, one, did they watch Doctor Who? And one of the guys said, yeah, he did. And um, we talked about the episode a little bit. And he found this episode quite confusing, um, the various things, which I was quite surprised about. Uh, he then there said that the following episode did resolve them. But I was... Yeah, I was slightly surprised of that. Um, but as to whether it's more too complicated, I think it's the general ideas are very clearly telegraphed. You know what's going on. How they fit together, you don't. And so I think that's perfectly fine for this kind of show. 
you know what's happening, but how it actually resolves in the mystery, we don't necessarily. And, and if that's a difficult resolution, then fair enough. It'll be clearly explained at some point. You're not you're not going to have a 2001 Space Odyssey ending <laughs> and just leave no, at that. No, probably. You know, it's not it's not going to do that. So I I think it too telegraph for my liking in, in certain things, but on the comprehensibility, I, I think it's perfectly fine. Yeah, um, I think as, as an opening episode, it's certainly a departure from the Russell T Davis model in that it doesn't take any great pains to reintroduce the format of the show or the basic concepts or ground it in anything in particular. It seems to jump into the middle of a story. I, I, I think, uh, coming back to what was the point of the sort of stuff at the start, mm. I think that was partly to do that, was to re-establish the idea of oh. the Doctor's a time, time traveller. And you do get um, the sort of re-explanation of who the ri- river is and her relationship to mm. the there's a bit of that going on yeah. but much less so right so, but I, I, I think that if if that was the case it seems to be so hurried that it almost wasn't worth it but that's um, by the by in terms of the complexity issue I didn't think it was too complex at all but then I still meet people who didn't understand the first Matrix movie so I'm probably not the best judge um, no as, as Philip said I think it, mystery is a deliberate part of this storyline and that's to be expected the online fan community has been fretting quite a bit that it might be turning people off but uh I suppose we'll see as the weeks progress. It, it's got a long way to go before it reaches lost levels of drawing things out oh, interminably. Um, and uh, I, I, I do hear that Lost did uh, uh, pick up its act uh, later on, but I stopped watching by then. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, the uh, yeah, I think. Um, Doctor Who does have a particularly dedicated audience. There do seem to be an awful lot of people who go out of their way to watch it, according to the audience research data mm. and stuff. And I think it is something written for the um, iPlayer age, the box set age, where it is easy to catch up on these things. Mm. I think if you look at shows like um, Ashes to Ashes and Life on Mars you had lots of mysteries and that was one of the things that got lots of people engaged and writing articles and papers and speculating on the mm. internet um, so I think uh, pushing Doctor Who in that direction I, I think it I, I really like it um, I think because Doctor Who can be so episodic it adds a lot to have an ongoing have ongoing storylines to tie it together. Uh, and I can't see Moffat um, dragging most of these out beyond this series. I mean, some will be a bit longer term, like River Song probably, mm. and there'll be things set up for later. But I imagine that the majority of this will be resolved by episode 13 or at least we'll have got enough answers so that even if there's more to be done with it we're um uh it's satisfying as a um as a part of the story Mm. um and yeah so i i think there's probably a lot of worrying on behalf of the casual audience by fans, yes. which is probably... There, uh, there always has been, though, really, hasn't yeah. there? Yeah, basically to justify bad stories. <laughs> um, uh, but I I, I, I I, think it's... Um, I, I'm really pleased to see the show going in a slight, slightly more complex mm. uh, direction with the yes. storytelling. It has fully evolved now, hasn't it, from the Russell T. Davis model? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah, we've seen that shift. And yeah, and if this is what um, Moffat's got in store, then I'm, I'm a very uh, happy happy bunny on the whole. I, I, I think the repeated devices, um, perhaps he could expand his repertoire of tricks yes. a bit, yeah. but he does use them terribly well, even mm. uh, if he... Um, 
Heathcliff is using uh, similar tropes. Mm-hmm. You just shook your head and then nodded. Sorry, no, sorry I was just uh, taking a breath and yawning. Ah, okay. Well, I think no. that just about wraps us up, yeah, doesn't so, it? Um, so a cautious thumbs up from us all for the start yeah, of the I'm, series. I'm, I'm a lot happier with the first episode now that I've seen the second, if right. that makes any sense. Yeah. Even, even saying that, all the reservations I did have about this episode, I did think it was the, my favourite of the season openers mm. we've had. Certainly one of the most interesting. Oh yeah, by far. By, by far more interesting than any of the previous five. Mm. Um so for that, oh, yeah. I, it has my praise. So yeah, we're off to a good start. So thank you for listening. Uh, please uh, let us know uh, your uh, thoughts uh, by getting in touch. Impossiblepodcasts at gmail dot com or on the blog or via Twitter, and you can subscribe. Uh, either from our site or on iTunes. So uh, yeah, stay tuned. Uh, thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Bye.